Okay. Um, one of the best things that a teacher can do is to give students further ways to continue their own education. So, um, this is a fabulous resource. It's at the top of the slides that, or the top of the um, screen, and I'm going to go back to it in a second. But um, this guy, James Rockford, um, I was looking into him just to, I've been using this all along, and I didn't tell you that last week, but uh, I looked at the book that he's just published, and one of the, um, you know, blur bio things on the dust jacket that was up on the web page was actually from the adjunct Old Testament professor that I had at seminary. So I thought that was kind of cool to see Eric, you know, PhD Eric Tully, he was working on his PhD and helping out with Dr. Johnson um, when I was in seminary 13 years ago and doing Old Testament. So it's cool. He's teaching at Deerfield, um, Trinity Evangelical School for Ministry in Deerfield, Illinois, I think. Yeah. Um, now, anyway, I just thought that was a neat connection. But this website is Evidence Unseen. Again, James Rockford. And if you go, he's got all these different things that he does. But if you go here, it's called you know, New Testament Difficulties, Old Testament Difficulties. And then when you open the Old Testament difficulties, you come to all of these different things. You can click on this and go to First and Second Samuel and Chronicle, First Samuel through Two Chronicles, and he walks you through all of these different things. He's got articles that he's written, um, kind of for some of the questions that we really don't have time to delve into here for. Um, and overview purposes, he's got great sort of question and answer in a very simple but straightforward rhetorical style of assertion and then um, discussion kind of pieces. And, and they're pretty easy to read and um, very helpful. So anyway, I commend this one to you as the um, website and just to cite the source of, of kind of where I've been putting a lot of material, but he goes, I mean, it's like a commentary, but it's online. He goes line by line and basically unpacks everything, but he's very colloquial in some of the ways that he, um, that he's, that he paraphrases and recaps things. And it's, um, it, it's very, it's very good. It's very easy to read. So just to kind of catch everybody up, anybody that wasn't here, just to remind those that were, um, the book of Samuel was originally one book, not two. Um, and it really deals with, um, in broad strokes, the role of prophets and kings together in leadership. Um, it's the introduction of the Davidic covenant, which is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And... Um, it's the story of the rise of Saul, the fall of Saul, the rise of David, the fall of David, the restoration of David, and then ultimately David's heir, uh, Solomon, um, kind of taking things over. And so that's the, the, you know, the, the nickel tour of what we've been talking about. And just to kind of remember and, and pick us up on um, where we were. And it's also uh, the, the end of, of Samuel. Um, David has a great song, kind of as a last will and testament kind of um, praise to the Lord. 
And it's all about the Lord's faithfulness despite the failings of men. And so um, we remember Saul began his reign at 30 and reigned for 42 years. Um, we're, we talked about how Saul couldn't wait for Samuel to come and make the sacrifice. Um, so he went ahead and did it, and that was a, a big overstep of his authority. And ultimately, um, one of the reasons that Saul would lose his kingship. Um, so these are, he does a great job of doing summary, unpacking the chapter, and then conclusion. And so what I've kind of done is cut out the unpacking of the chapter and kind of um, look at the summary and the conclusions and we'll tease out some things along there. Um, so Jonathan defeats the Philistines and um, we see Saul taking credit for Jonathan's victory and just Saul is an archetypal example of a boastful, arrogant king who makes claims that can't or shouldn't, he can't or shouldn't follow through with. Um, and he, again, he has some good questions in here, you know, Saul jealous of his own son, so on and so forth. Um, we remember Saul um, defeating the Am- Amalekites, but failing to destroy them. Why is this? Samuel calls him out on it and says, what, what are these sheep that I hear bleeding in my ears? You didn't quite do what you were supposed to do as far as wipe them off the face of the earth. Um, so you've held back what was due to God and kept it for yourself. And, and Saul does what um, most of us are tempted to do, which is, is blame somebody else. He blames the people and says, well, it, it was for them. And they, they kind of put pressure on me to do that. And so that's, that's chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. Um, chapter 16, we remember um, Samuel coming under, sort of under disguise to Jesse's house and um, saying, I'm just here to make a sacrifice. But really the Lord had told him to, to go and anoint the next king. He's got um, seven sons that are in there, and um, they all kind of pass before Samuel, and the Lord doesn't, Samuel likes everything that he sees. He says, surely this is the one, and, and uh, God says, nope, not him, all the way through. And he says, is this it? Do you have any more sons? And he says, I've got just the, the little one, the youngest one. He's out keeping the sheep. And he says, well, bring him in. That's David. Samuel anoints David, and um, the brothers are jealous, Um, but that's um, chapter 16 is the anointing of David, 17 is David and Goliath, and remember David was put into um, Saul's armor, it doesn't fit, and um, David cites the Lord, Um, you come to me with um, strength and might, but I I come to you in the name of the living God, and um, this is just a great insight and reminder for us that we shouldn't judge the radical faith of others. Um, David's brother was angry that David wanted to show faith in God, but sometimes it's easy to judge jealous believers for being self-righteous or super spiritual. But this was wrong in the case of David's brother. David was in the right, and his brother was being cynical, judgmental, and frankly sinful. Um, often larger spiritual battles, spiritual victories come after long times of faithfulness. Um, we are learning that now as we're putting one foot in front of the other, building this house to try and do a church there, and it's taken us 
so much longer than we thought, but it is coming and it is happening and we're seeing um, glimpses of hope and light at the end of the tunnel. But stay with it. And um, God is faithful. And so it says, um, preparation to quietly follow and trust God over the years. Are you content guarding a little flock of sheep? Are you faithful with the little flock that God has given you? Are you too busy daydreaming over doing big things like saving the nation of Israel from a nine-foot giant? Believers often daydream about being the next Billy Graham, but are they content to faithfully lead small groups of people from the lions and bears daily? Uh, David was quick to point out that it was God who accomplished this battle, not himself. Um, this was because earlier the Spirit of the Lord came upon David. Um, David was different from Saul in that he didn't trust his own power but God's power. Saul wanted the credit for himself, but David gives the credit to God. Saul is unbelieving in David, but David is sure he can do it because of his faith. So, um, after this happens, where we left last week, Saul's eye was upon David from that point forward. Um, He was eyeing him, he was watching him, he was jealous of him, he was worried about him because he knew that... um, Somehow, in his spirit, in his heart, he knew that God had really taken his hand off of him, Saul, and put his hand and his anointing on David. And um, so we, we see this dynamic for the rest of 1 Samuel. We see this dynamic between Saul and David play out. Um, David becomes friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. Um, Saul tries to take David out of the picture, and David later uses this same strategy for killing Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. But he tries to take David out directly um, with a spear. He tries to take David out indirectly um, with promising his daughter if David defeats the Philistines. The, the, David says, there's no way I can pay the dowry. Saul says, don't worry about that. Bring me a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Okay. (laughs) Um, David comes back successful. And um, Saul thinks there's no way he'll make it out of this alive. Yet he does. And then um, he tries to kill him indirectly with Michael, um, his other daughter. um, And uh, he says, this is a... His, this is young blood as a commentator, um, a, a very traditional historic from the mid, early to middle 1900s um, commentary, and it says the symbolism of David marrying Saul's daughter should not be missed. When political marriages were arranged, it was usually the daughter of the ostensibly weaker ruler who marries the stronger, and David's uh, relentless climb to Israel thrones proceeds apace. Um, he said he didn't have money for the dowry, um, so on and so forth. The beginning of David's um, inner circle of counsel, they, these guys show up here in this campaign, and they, a lot of them stay with him until the end. Um, human, human nature to be jealous. Um, we see a good example of what we, what we would call spiritual friendship. And... Um, this promise of Jonathan to stick with David and to um, help David out, even though it was 
going against his father's commands. And um, that happens. David, um, he, he becomes a refuge, refugee and kind of a fugitive from the kingdom of Saul. And he's on the run. And um, he gets chased out of Saul's house and out of, out of the, the kingdom. Uh, I mean, out of his house, basically. And um, is on the run. And so as he is watching this and seeing how his father is pursuing David, Saul is pursuing David, Jonathan gets a glimpse into the reality that his father is on the downward slide and he's, he's losing it. And so he, um, he, there's this test um, trying to figure out whether Saul is really true and his promise not to harm David or not. And Jonathan helps David discern this and um, there's an argument here because Saul made a fraudulent oath to David that he wouldn't die, and Jonathan can't accept that his father would lie to him. So his, his loyalty is, is troubled there. Um, so David sets up this test. And then um, there is this renewal of this promise between um, Jonathan and David. And I want to take just one minute to digress into a Hebrew word, and that Hebrew word is, is hesed. Um, and it's it, the term deal kindly is a translation of the Hebrew word hesed, which is the word used for God's loyal love in the Old Testament. And David would rather have Jonathan kill him than the thought to be disloyal to the covenant that he had made with Jonathan. Um, David takes these promises very seriously. But hesed is, um, it is known more commonly to us in our reading of things as the loving kindness of God. And um, it it's, all speaks to God's faithfulness, um, to his unconditional and deep and great love for us. And that word hesed is um, just a really important word in the Old Testament about God's character. And we see it being used here in David with his relationship towards Jonathan. And um, ultimately, we see it in Jesus and his relationship towards us. Um, so it's, it's just a, an important link between God the Father and ultimately God the Son and their faithfulness and their love for us. But we see it, um, that, that word is not one that would be used usually of human um, caring and human giving because we're all selfish broken people and so to see has said there is just a little bit unusual um, let's see 21 chapter 21 David flees to another place called Nob to see a Halimelech the priest he asks for food um, Ahimelech gives him uh, a sword and um, some food, and this is, this is what I mean about the way that he writes. It makes all of this very easy to understand. He says, remember that all this happened before cell phones. One phone call to Saul would have ruined this entire plan. Um, and he's right. Um, you pick this thing up and say, hey, yeah. he, 
I'm trying to confirm whether or not. And, uh, and he, he can't do that. So David went in and said, I'm here on behalf of the king. And I think he may have said, I'm here on behalf of the Lord. I can't remember the exact language. But either way, he didn't say Saul. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's a, a little bit of nuance in the fact that he's saying he's here on behalf of the, the Lord, but he lets him believe he's there on behalf of Saul. And so he takes Goliath's sword, and um, then this is, this is where he pretends to be crazy so that they don't get too close to him. He doesn't get discovered and then ultimately killed. So they leave him alone because he pretends to be nuts. And um, then um, this guy takes the ceremonial, ceremonial bread, bread of the presence that only the priests are supposed to eat and gives it to David and his men because they're hungry. And that was, um, again, another foreshadowing of Jesus. I'm the bread of life and all of these connections that we see very loosely but very clearly beginning to establish um, the connection between David and ultimately Jesus. So um, Saul wipes out all these priests um, because they gave help to David. Um, He's still on the hunt for David. Um, Let's see. David's hiding out in a cave, and um, Saul is out looking for him. This is funny little passage where um, Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself, and David and all of his men are kind of up against the wall, like nobody move, nobody breathe. And um, Saul is so close to David that he could have killed him, and he doesn't. He cuts off a piece of his robe. Um, and that, even in David's mind, that was an offense that we'll see later because it was an attack on God's anointed one. But um, he doesn't kill him um, when he had a very good and easy opportunity to. Um, David's men took this as, as God's providence. God brought Saul here so David can kill him and take over being king. Um, he cuts off a piece of Saul's robe, but this bothered his conscience. David doesn't believe that he should take Saul's position as king because God had chosen Saul, so he didn't kill him. David uses this as leverage to reason with Saul, um, showing that he didn't want to hurt him. And this causes Saul to break down crying at David's mercy, and David left without harming him. And another just cool side note is that Psalm 57 and 142 were written in this time, and both of these time, both of these psalms, David states that God is his refuge, not not the cave. Um, so, um, wrestling with the question of why David didn't kill Saul, um, his reasons are pretty clear. But what does it look like today? Um, it seems that David had a sense of God's timing; um, that he knew that he needed to wait on the Lord, and if God wanted him to be king then it would happen and it didn't need to be forced and it certainly didn't need to be forced by David. Um, so for us, if God's putting us in a position in his kingdom, we should be content with that. And the driven person needs to learn to be content with where they are right now 
um, not to push or manipulate or to force ourselves into a new position of ministry. On the other hand, the timid person needs to learn to step forward when God is calling them to a new place. And I think both of us can appreciate both sides of that. Um, I think we can all appreciate both sides of that. Um, but he was wise because he chose the peaceful solution because of the, uh, of the violent one. And um, 25, the main point of 25, uh, verse of chapter 25, Samuel the prophet dies. And um, then um, David couldn't kill Saul again, so Saul came after David again. He has another one of his fits and comes after David. Um, and they found him asleep in the camp, and Abishai wanted to kill him, and David doesn't want to kill God's anointed again. And David went across the valley and called to Abner, and that's one of Saul's main men. And he lets him have it because he's not protecting the king the way that he should be. And he tries to reason with Saul again um, by asking what he's done, and Saul repents again, but David doesn't trust him, telling him to send his servant to pick up his spear. Saul blesses David, and they both go home. Um, we should wait for God to raise us up when he's ready to. David didn't take matters into his own hands. It's interesting that David was willing to kill Nabal in the previous chapter and all of his servants, but he refused to kill Saul, who is a killer. How strange. It shows that David doesn't want to mess with God's plan and chosen one, the anointed one. So he escapes to Gath, another city. Um, Saul's trying to figure out where he is. Um, and so this, I meant to highlight this, I should, I should have. David shows here, right here, that discernment, um, and he doesn't make his judgments based on Saul's words, but it's works. Jesus says, you'll know them by their, you'll know they're Christians by their love, but you'll know a tree by their fruit. <clears throat> and so um, David does the same thing here. He looks at Saul's work and he says, Saul's betrayed him so many times he just can't trust him. And it would have been easy for David to turn bitter towards the nation of Israel. After all, he's been fighting Israel for a long time. He is on the run from them too. And he's been repaid with nothing but death threats. But instead of turning bitter, David continues to serve God even in exile. So Saul's trying to figure out where he is. He visits a, a medium for help. This is, um, yeah, it just shows sort of how far Saul has fallen. Um, he's willing to go to a, a sorceress or a, a witch or a medium to communicate um, and, and try and figure out what's next. And um, so um, Philistines are back at it again. They're worried about David. Um, but David's He's, he's ready. And so, um, let's see, 30s. Okay, the important part of 30 here is that David shows mercy. Um, after this village has been um, raided and David's men are, are thinking about stoning him, he has, he has some insight and he... Um, <coughs> He, he trusts the Lord. Um, so he's still moving forward with God's plan. He didn't stop being a leader. Um, he took his strength from God, even when all people had turned against him. It didn't take his value from people, but from God. 
And David was a giver. He gave all of the plunder to those that were too weak to make it into battle, not because they were cowardly, but because they were too weak. And then um, the Philistines catch up with Saul, um, well, Saul's sons, excuse me, and um, Saul hears of this and kills himself. And um, the rest of it happens pretty fast. And so this is the, the end of 1 Samuel, the beginning of 2 Samuel. As I said, it's all, it's all one book of Samuel. I'm trying to see the time. It's all one book of Samuel. Um, but this is the turning point um, when Saul dies and David really steps up. So... Um, Again, I just like this guy's language and how he makes, how he makes connections for. It. He says this is reminiscent to the end of the Empire Strikes Back. At the end of the film, uh, the viewer discovers that Darth Vader is Luke's father. Han Solo is proven in carbonite, and the rebellion's on the run. The viewer can't wait to find out what will happen next. And so, Sam, First Samuel going into Second Samuel, same kind of cliffhanger. Saul's dead. Is Samuel going to step up and take over? I mean, I'm sorry, is David going to step up and take over? What, what's going to happen? Um, Saul and Jonathan are dead. The Philistines have overtaken Israel. David's in exile. What's going to happen? Well, David's going to mourn for the death of Saul and Jonathan. Um, and then um, in verse 2, so 2 Samuel 2, 2, the men of Judah anoint him as king over Judah, which is really just a recognition of what God has already done through Samuel the prophet. And so um, the people are realizing, the nation is realizing that this is our guy. And so um, back in the beginning of it, they said, to Samuel, give us a king. And he said, I don't think you want a king. And they said, no, we want a king. Give us a king. And they ended up with Saul. And um, they're, they're seeing that Saul is, was not, it didn't work out so well. And so um, they still want a king, but now they're seeing this guy as their guy. And um, I'll just kind of pause here for thoughts, questions. I don't want to spend too much time taking questions right now because we've got all the second Samuel to kind of blow through. But I think there are just a few kind of critical scenes to highlight in Second Samuel and I can leave you to do the rest. So now's a good time to take any questions. Um, you're gonna hard one. Go ahead. <laughs> I know it's coming. <laughs> uh. Uh, so many. It just seems like just one overall thing is just how much warring was going on in the book. Just when there was no king, there were constant, you know, the Israelites were constantly being played by everybody. And then when they did get kings, it wasn't like the kings just came through and one mighty battle knocked everybody out. It's, it's constant warfare. Saul king for 40 years, and yet still the Philistines at any moment come in and, and Saul is terrified that they're going to they're going to win again. Yeah. And and then even David, you know, where uh, the description of David of being choosing the nonviolent approach to Saul, as opposed to his, you know, being willing to kill Nate, Nate all the fool, mm -hmm. and and then all of the 
these other people. I mean, it's just so, uh, and I guess my question is almost like outside of the Bible, it's like culturally, was the world that violent everywhere at that time? That was like a thousand years before Christ? Easily, yeah. I don't know culturally for the world, but I think one of the things that we can see historically to sort of answer that question is that when kings come and bring peace, they bring peace through war. Yeah, yeah. And um, that's where Jesus was different. And so um, that's, what, you know, that's one of the key things that makes our faith different than so many other faiths. But um, I do think there, were, there, there was conflict often. And I think the only thing that really kept the conflict at bay was the strength of the Roman army or the strength of whatever that kept any would-be attacker in fear. And, and so it was really a, a peace by fear rather than a peace by um, peace or justice or mercy or anything like that. So yeah, I guess what came, yeah, yeah. Exactly that I guess these stories, the reason we have them in the Bible is in the midst of that milieu mm -hmm. culture, David just stands out as such a stellar guy. I mean, he really is like a rock star in the way he responds to Saul's, you know, the betrayal of his king and his trust in God and the fact that he won't kill God's anointed. Uh, yet he won't trust him. I mean, it's just. David really is a guy that we can look at, and one of the few people in the Old Testament that we can kind of look at and say, wow, he, he had a sense of trusting God in a way that navigated through crazy. Yeah, crazy, crazy. absolutely. You know, the closest thing, I, I keep thinking it's like living in a gang-controlled <laughs> city or something. You know? I have not done that either, but I can, I can imagine, and I think you're probably right, which is a really good transition to what happens next because David gets into power he starts thinking about building the temple for God and he, um, he he ultimately doesn't because God tells him not to but he starts to get things ready for that and in the midst of that he's he's put down these people called the Jebusites and um, he's put down this civil war that was kind of happening between um, and continues to happen but at least for the near term it's it's controlled between the northern territory and the southern territory um, but as the see so that's two four so here we get so he's, he again goes back out and defeats the Philistines um, and Finally, the monarchy is united under David's leadership. This is uh, verse, uh, chapter four, beginning of verse five, or chapter five, sorry. Monarchy is united. The first reason they give for David's right to rule is that he was an Israelite, which was a requirement of the law. Second reason they give is David's history of service. He's the one that went and did the fighting against the Philistines. He wasn't simply a named leader. He was actually acting like a leader. And the third reason is David is their shepherd and their ruler. Um, God himself was the shepherd of the people 
and the king will be the shepherd as well. Incidentally, David is also a literal shepherd before receiving his calling as king. Um, David becomes the archetype for the shepherd king we ultimately see fulfilled in David's descendant, Jesus. Um, so this whole idea of shepherding and this whole metaphor is ultimately what Nathan uses to call David to the carpet with Bathsheba. Um, but he didn't go to the people. The people came to him. They recognized leadership and they were willing to follow it. And so David said, this says, note that the covenant was made before the Lord. Um, he wasn't seizing tyrannical control. This was all under the authority of God. Um, he was affirmed as the king, but think about how many years this took to happen. It shows the patience of David to wait on the Lord's timing. Um, he couldn't be stopped because God was with him. And he learned this lesson well and gave him confidence to trust God even further. Um, so he gathers the men, um, goes to get the ark, and Uzzah um, is one of his guys. And they built this same, it's very, it echoes back to in 1 Samuel when the ark was lost. They had all the plagues and tumors and everything that, um, and they sent the ark back on a new cart with milk, milk cows. And, um, and he goes and takes the ark and um, the ark is on this cart and it's precarious and as it's about to fall off one of his men reaches out Uzzah and, and stabilizes it and he, he drops dead and um, it is not being handled properly the ark is supposed to be carried by the Levites on poles on their shoulders not on a cart being drawn by a, a, a cow or a mule or whatever and um, it, it's, he recognizes that, he fixes that, he brings it back into Jerusalem the right way. And um, it's this scene of him showing excitement and zeal. And the whole town is excited and rejoicing that the ark is back. And David dances naked in front of the ark. And Michael, the one whom um, used to look at him through the window, admiring him is now looking at him wanting him dead um, and uh, let's see he goes to get the ark this is all the breakdown of that stuff um, God didn't want them to stray from his commands David learned that lesson God's way God's work done God's way but we also can't just blindly follow our leaders we each individually held accountable before God for knowing and interpreting his word don't quench the spirit. It isn't your role to tell people that their prayers were coincidentally fulfilled, and it's not your role to mock people who have excitement for God. Um, sarcasm, cynicism, and negativity are an affront to God, and it sucks the excitement from the Christian community. Learn to, <clears throat> I think we can all certainly see this. Learn to show zeal and excitement for God. They're usually signs of a stronger, a strong ethos in a group, and often believers in our evangelical church worry that non-Christians will feel strange to see Christians showing emotion and excitement for God. While fake or bizarre displays of emotion are out of bounds, it's been our experience that most believers don't show enough emotion. Um, in fact, um, what is weird is to believe that you're a child of God inheriting the kingdom of God without showing any emotion about it. We're all children of God. 
We're inheritors of the kingdom of God. And yet we're scared to show that to people. Um, so it says, learn, learn to amen prayers at prayer meetings. Most people don't realize that this is biblical and important. And come, uh, when you come to a prayer meeting with pursed lips, not even sharing an amen. And that's just from 1 Corinthians. So David is um, in... He's in Jerusalem. He's thinking about building the temple. I need to speed up to get through. Um, thinking about building the temple, he talks to God. God says, nope, not, not there. I love this line. He says, God prefers a mobile home or an RV to show that his holiness can be moved. God's desire is to walk in the midst of the people. He didn't want a stationary temple. This is fulfilled in Jesus who came to, quote, tabernacle, iskene. It's the Greek word there. Um, tabernacle among people. Jesus was God embodied in the world, similar to the movable tabernacle, only to a far greater degree. <clears throat> um, all right, so let's see. God cannot lie when he makes promises permanent and irrevocable. When we try to offer something to God, God often trumps our efforts in doing something greater for us. We can't outgive God. It's like giving a grain of sand to the owner of the beach. Um, so David's back at war. Um, this is just a digression about Jonathan's son that David, he's crippled um, David has compassion on him, brings him into his kingdom um, into his court and he um, is there, then we get to this David was idle um, he was not going out to war as he should have been he sees Bathsheba the wife of Uriah, one of his key key leaders and captains. Um, they sleep together immediately. And <clears throat> he pulls Uriah off the battlefield, telling him to go home and be with his wife. Uriah couldn't bring himself to go home and comfort his house when his comrades were out in battle. David even tried to get him drunk to go home, and he wouldn't. Um, told Joab to put Uriah out in the front so he'd be killed. He then married Bathsheba, but this displeased God. Uriah was one of David's closest warriors, and he betrayed him and killed his wife. <clears throat> Later, Absalom, his son, would learn, uh, learn sex with David's concubines on the same roof. David's lack of moral integrity leads to his own son's downfall as well. Um, so we see, and this is just unpacking the details of that, but basically, cover-up number one, get him home quickly so he'll think that this kid is his. Cover-up number two, um, Let's try a little harder to get him to be with his wife. Cover up number three. Let's get rid of him. And um, that's almost exactly what Saul did with David, trying to get rid of David. So anyway, there's that. And then um, he breaks three of God's central commandments about coveting your neighbor, your neighbor's wife, committing adultery, and committing murder. Um, the Bible's pretty honest about the faults of his heroes. And this chapter seems like a scene out of The Godfather, more so towards the end of it, um, in the beginning of Kings, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, David was a fixer, and he tried to tie up all these loose ends, but he ignored the fact that God sees everything. And when we're in sin, we want to act like Adam hiding in the bushes, but we'd be better off if we just came out with it. Um, this is talking about Uriah's faithfulness and um, it's written this is from 1 Corinthians it just says now let these things now these things these things happen to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction 
on whom the end of the ages has come. Now let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way out that you may also be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So we have Nathan shows up on the scene, tells the story of the lamb. Um, the interesting thing here, middle of this page, is eat, drink, lie. Lie down. Eat, drink, lie down with the lamb. That's what this owner of this little ewe lamb that he loved used to do. That's exactly what Uriah is told to do with his wife when he comes home. Um, so it's just a, an echo of that. David doesn't get it. Um, he doesn't see that he's being set up in a rhetorical trap. Um, and then he is called out and Nathan turns the tables on him and says, you're the man. Not in a good way. <laughs> you're the man. And David, um, he, he, he repents. Um, he, he comes on his face there and um, it, it would have been easy for David to say be done with him but uh, he responds with repentance and God forgives him of the sin yet the consequences still remain and um, that's true for all of us too so let's move here let's see um, Amnon, Tamar, that's an interesting passage, we'll skip that, but he has a sister, half-sister, who he is really infatuated with, and um, he mistreats her, and Absalom, David's son, um, her, her brother, comes after him and kills him, and then he has to flee. Absalom, while he's in exile, sets up a revolt against David, so there's more unrest and civil um, disturbance there, um, David sends the ark back to Jerusalem. Absalom installs himself outside the gates of Jerusalem as a leader. He's sort of feigning um, to be in charge, riding in on a chariot, just like Samuel said leaders and kings would. And um, he's got people that begin to follow him and, and look to taking up him instead of David. And then he's got... Um, Ultimately, this is what we're talking about with Bathsheba. Um, he does all of this sexual immorality on the roof, same roof that David sinned with Bathsheba, and um, he does it there, but he does it all in public, fulfilling Nathan's prediction about him. And um, let's see. David's on the run for most of his adult life. And if God had told him he would be king, we doubt that he would have believed that this would involve such turmoil. As believers, we are sons of the king, and yet we are tormented too. David didn't have to face this torment alone. How many people side with him, and how many people helping him along the way, messengers, etc. Um, we have the Holy Spirit to help us along the way. So we're not there, but we're getting there. Um, Absalom has this great hair. It's a funny little story. We'll, we'll sort of digress there. Great hair. Um, as he's fleeing the battle, he gets stuck in a tree by the hair. Um, Joab finds him. He's vulnerable because he's hanging by his hair from a tree. Um, they 
<laughs> they surround him, they kill him, and uh, the news is carried back to David. And um, David is, he weeps for Absalom, and Joab rebukes him for this, um, but David it just has a heart. And um, anyway, um, let's see. Sheba's rebellion, David's cabinet. So back to the whole Godfather thing, and we'll finish here. Um, David writes this beautiful song of praise. I encourage it to you. It's, it's 22. We didn't have time to hit through all the points to get to it. But he writes this beautiful song of praise as kind of his last words um, about the Lord. And then he calls Solomon to him and gives him instructions about what to do. And um, it is very Godfather-like. And he calls him close to his deathbed. And he's looking at all of these people in his cabinet and his council around him. And he says, kill them all. Kill them all. Because they're all vicious and crooks. They're going to make it, make your life miserable and and." And Benaiah, one of David's um, trusted men, um, does this um, with others on behalf of Solomon at Solomon's command to do that. And um, that's the beginning of Kings and um, the end of Samuel. But um, it is what I've enjoyed about this and what I would encourage you to do, um, especially with the resources of this. Um, click on that and you got everything you ever want to know and way more about line by line, verse by verse. You can go through all of this. It's why I got so bogged down because I just started enjoying, enjoying myself. But it is, it is drama. Um, like no soap opera on afternoon television is drama. And um, and at the end of the day, what we see is David's trust in the Lord, um, believing in God's faithfulness, um, even though he is sinful, even though he is a mess, um, he doesn't have it all figured out. He believes and trusts that God does. And ultimately, that's what we're all called to do, too. When we sin... We repent and return to the Lord, and He is faithful and just and forgives us all of our sins. And um, that is ultimately what we see in David's life, is um, trust in the Lord when you have erred and strayed and fallen into, into sin. Repent and return to the Lord, and you will receive forgiveness. And um, it doesn't mean it's the consequences of that sin still remain. But your forgiveness is guaranteed. So let me pray and then we'll be done. So Lord, thank you um, for the life of David. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to um, show each of us how we need to repent and return to you. But I also thank you that when we do repent, that you are faithful and you are just and you are loving and that your loving kindness is new every morning. And so, Lord, I pray that you would um, send your Holy Spirit to us to um, encourage us and to strengthen us, to guide us and to lead us, and to um, just assure us of your loving kindness towards us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Thanks. Of course.